If you would this morning, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to deal with Matthew chapter 10 in two parts this week and then again in a couple weeks. I've titled the sermon very simply, The Sending King, part one, and then in two weeks will be part two. Um, we are having church next week, though, so just show up. It's just I'm not preaching next week. Um, as you remember, <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, we finished up Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And there we saw Jesus looking out on the crowds that had begun to gather around him. And he looked on them with compassion, seeing them as sheep who needed a shepherd, those who were in spiritual need. And he instructed his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers into his harvest. And then here in chapter 10, immediately after, what, what we will see is Jesus sending workers into the harvest. Not just any workers, but the people who he had just previously asked to pray for workers. And so in Matthew 10, specifically in 1 through 25 today, but then in, in through the rest of the chapter... We're going to see this, that as the church goes into the world to do the work of the king, we need to, we must be aware of and ready to endure with grace the same opposition that the king himself faced. So Jesus is sending people into the field, into the harvest, to do the things that he did, and also face the sort of opposition, the sort of persecution, the sort of difficulty that even he himself would face. We saw a hint of that just a, a couple weeks ago when, when Jesus was receiving, uh, uh, was, the, was the object of slanderous speech or, or uh, false accusations from the Pharisees. Uh, and this will get worse even in Jesus' own life, and, and the same will be true in the disciples' lives. I just want to forewarn you, the topic of, or the, the, the point of today's text is not an easy one for us this morning, okay? And so you're probably going to have to work through it a little bit and, and try to get out of your Western 21st century American mindset and, and try to get into a, a mindset of, of the global Christian and the, and, the, and the perspective of the global church and how believers around the world are living even today. As we look at this text, the first thing that we see is that the king who calls for prayer is the king who commands to go. The king who calls for prayer is the king who commands to go. Look at verses 1 through uh, 15. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve disciples, <clears throat> twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, some of your translations may say Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. Cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. 
Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. As we read these first 15 verses of chapter 10, we do well to recall verse 38 of chapter 9 just before, where Jesus said, Therefore pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And then immediately in chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus calls, he summons his disciples to be sent out. Okay, that, that word, when it says Jesus called his disciples to him, some of your translations may have done a, a, a better uh, job of translating this word call and said summoned, right? He summoned his disciples to himself. This is more than just Jesus saying, hey, y'all, come here a minute. I got something I want to talk to you about, right? This is, this is a summoning. It's a call to attention, not unlike a military commander does with his troops, to give them a charge, to give them instructions about a task that there is to complete. The point is that the disciples are summoned, brought together to receive a charge that they might be then changed by it and do what has been instructed. This king who has just commanded Jesus, his disciples, to pray for workers to go into the harvest is now gathering and sending the ones who were just praying to be sent. So catch this. This is the the pattern in the New Testament and specifically in Jesus' ministry that praying for the harvest, praying for the lost, praying for those who need Jesus always leads to going to the lost, going into the harvest. That is to say, if you pray for the harvest, expect God to send you into the harvest. And if you don't want to be sent into the harvest, certainly don't pray for the harvest. But by all means, pray for the harvest that you might be sent into it. And Jesus not only sends them out, but he charges them with the same kind of ministry that he's doing. Right. Specifically preaching and healing. Remember chapter nine, verse thirty five. We said this was the second half of an inclusio along with uh, the first part of chapter four that summarizes Jesus's ministry. Chapter nine, thirty five says Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. And then what does Jesus tell them to do? Well, verse one of chapter 10, he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority because he's king, because he has authority to give. He can give it to his disciples. He gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and affliction. And then in verse seven, he says to them, he instructs them, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Jesus instructs, gives authority to his disciples to do the exact same ministry among the lost, among the harvest that he himself was doing. That's a good thing, right? And as we as the church, as we are sent, we are called to do the same thing that Jesus did. Proclaim the kingdom. Proclaim that the king has come, that there is salvation from, from sin, forgiveness of sin, salvation, right relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Heal those who are spiritually ill and hurting. Give mercy and compassion to those who need it. It's what Jesus did. It's what his followers do. And in giving them these instructions, Jesus tells them in verse 5 where to go. He tells them where to go. He says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Maybe you bristle a little bit at that. Why so specific, Jesus? Why so exclusive? What's the, what's the point there? You're, you're leaving out a bunch of people. Well, this is not a command to neglect the Gentiles. Not, not by any means, right? Jesus is not saying don't take the gospel to the Gentiles ever, period. The gospel is going to get there soon enough. And, and in fact, the gospel has even, has even gone out to some of the Gentiles. Remember that centurion, the Roman centurion several weeks ago who came to Jesus? Not a believer, not a Jew, right? He's a Gentile, but he's heard of Jesus. He trusts in Jesus. He knows that Jesus has power to heal his servant who's suffering from paralysis. And Jesus marvels at the faith of this Gentile. 
So it's not that Jesus is saying Gentiles are not worthy of the gospel. What he's instructing his disciples to do here is instead to extend the good news of the promised Messiah and the kingdom first to the people who had specifically been waiting for it. So the people who have been expecting this king to come get the news first that the king has come because they've been waiting for him. Just makes sense. He tells them where to go. He also tells them how to go. In verses 8 through 15. He tells them how to go. He says, go simply. That is, without excess. Verses 8 through 10. He says, uh, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, uh, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. He says, go simply. That's without extra stuff in tow. We should notice two things, I think, uh, about these instructions. Uh, in their simplicity in which they are to go. First, the mission is going to be relatively short. Okay? Jesus is not, this is not the final sending that Jesus will give to the apostles into the world. This is an initial one. They're going to the lost sheep of Israel. Eventually, right at the end of Matthew 28, we have the Great Commission, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells them to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey the things He's commanded them. Acts 1, 8, you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. But this is an initial sort of mid-ministry sending that Jesus is doing here. It's going to be relatively short. They're supposed to come back to Jesus to follow him again and receive more instruction before he'll be crucified and raised again. So the mission is short. But secondly, and maybe more importantly, there is on this mission to to the Jews with the message of the kingdom, there is no place for materialism in this mission. No place for it. That is to say, God is good to provide all that his messengers will need. And so his messengers, the disciples then and us now, we have no need to worry or to be anxious about anything that we need, especially as we go on mission with the gospel, especially as we go into the harvest with the gospel. We are to trust God for all things. Jesus even mentioned, right, that we're able to trust God. God is a good God who gives good things to his people. In Matthew chapter 7, talking about not worrying because God takes such good care of the sparrows and the grass of the field and those things. How much more will he then care for us And so the simplicity in which the disciples must go highlights their very dependence upon God and the one who sends them. Church, when was the last time you saw a missionary preparing to go on mission, to go on the mission field with his 55-inch flat screen strapped to his back, right? Trying to squeeze that into the overhead compartment on the airplane into sub-Saharan Africa, right? Doesn't happen. There's no place for materialism or personal material goods, personal wealth, the amassing of wealth on mission, Why? Because it slows us down. It distracts us. It keeps us from doing what we are supposed to do. And it keeps us from relying primarily on the one who has sent us. So in the same way, we should strive to, even in our lives now, today, we should strive to live simply so that we might be able, uh, so that we might be prepared to go freely. Right? Live simply that you can go freely. College students, young adults, young couples, you who don't have a mortgage yet and, uh, and maybe a flexible job situation. See the simplicity with which your life is already imbued by God, okay? God has given you great freedom. 
and not being tied down to a mortgage or a, maybe a particular job. Maybe you have a job that you can get away from easily for a few weeks at a time, maybe a couple months at a time in the summer. College students, you have natural breaks built into your schedule in school over the winter and in the summer with which you can give your lives, that, that time that you would normally spend uh, on yourself, you can give it on mission for God. God has a, the, the, just the stage of life that you are in given you a, a radical degree of simplicity that you ought to leverage for the kingdom and for the harvest. Families, those of you who do have mortgages, right? Full-time jobs. You only get a couple weeks of vacation a year and, and other things. Maybe you need to consider downsizing your home. Maybe you've got a four-bed, three-bath, two-living space, whatever, and you don't need all that space, and you don't need the mortgage payment that comes with all that space. Maybe you need to downsize and help your family to know how to live more simply, to live more modestly, more within your means, that you can be more generous with what God has already given you. That every penny of your paycheck might not be tied up in mortgage and bills and cable and internet and all the other things that, that we like in our society. Maybe we need to forego some of those creature comforts that we might be able to be more uh, free to go on mission. Brother, sister, maybe God's calling you to sell your house today so that you can give more sacrificially and go more freely with the gospel. Those of us who are wealthy, those of us who have well beyond what we need to live in a given year. Maybe God is calling you to give of that more generously, not to hoard it away in a, in a nest egg or 401k or, or to build up a, a massive inheritance for your children and your grandchildren and those sorts of things. Not that it's not good to take care of those that come after us, but at the same time, maybe God's calling you to give up some of those things that you might be able to give financially more generously for the sake of the kingdom. That missionaries who are on the field might not have to raise support or or fear for not having enough financial support because we have enough to give more generously. Maybe God is calling you to change your lifestyle uh, that you might be able to give more to the International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, other mission agencies around the world. There are also those of us here this morning who are poor. We don't have much. We have a hard time making ends meet. We do live paycheck to paycheck, and there's relatively no margin uh, month to month. Not able to save a lot. Give faithfully what we can when we can. But other than that, we don't, we don't have a lot of the, those creature comforts. I mean, we have a house that's smaller than we would like, and we don't have all the things that we might uh, think that, that would make us comfortable. But for those of us who are poor and maybe even struggling financially, rejoice in this. Rejoice in your poverty. Because God has also given you the ability to go more freely. See your poverty even as a blessing from God that you can go more freely into the harvest because you have less things holding you back. Because you have fewer creature comforts, fewer amenities that are restricting you from giving your life fully and completely in trust to God. And even in your poverty, continue to trust God for all things. Continue to do it. Jesus tells them to go simply. He also tells them to go peacefully dependent. That is, in peace, trusting God. Verses 11 through 15. In 11 and 13, he gives them instruction to greet and to bless those who show hospitality and openness to the gospel of the kingdom. Okay, so when they go into a town and they start sharing the gospel and someone says, hey, that sounds pretty good. Uh, you guys don't aren't from around here. Do you need a place to stay? Um, then the disciples are to show uh, gratitude to those that are welcoming them into their home. So when someone shows hospitality to the gospel, the disciples are to bless and to ingratiate themselves to those who welcome the gospel. And in verses 14 and 15, Jesus tells them to leave those who are inhospitable and close to the gospel because their judgment will be evident when the time comes. 
Right? He says, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. It's just a, a symbol of showing that you're having nothing to do with, with that town, shaking off the dust even from your feet, moving on to the next. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, I, uh, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That is to say, when someone despises the gospel or rejects it, the disciples, even we, are to move on in peace. Move on in peace, knowing that God deals justly with everyone, believer or not. So believer, brother, sister, you who are trusting Christ, don't revile those who revile the gospel. When you are insulted for the gospel, do not return insult in like kind, in like fashion. When you are hated for the gospel, do not hate those who hate you for the gospel. Non-believing friend, you who are here today not yet trusting Christ, understand this. That by rejecting the gospel, by rejecting Jesus, by not trusting him as king and savior, resting your life upon him, his death on the cross in your place and his resurrection. You who reject the gospel, place yourself under God's just judgment. That's what this text tells us today. Believers, don't revile those who revile the gospel. Unbelievers, see that you stand in God's just and righteous judgment for not trusting in Jesus. God is a good God and a just God, and you want a good God and a just God. If he is not just, if he does not punish sin, even your sin and and mine, then he's not a just God and he's not worthy of worship. But brothers and sisters, we do worship a just God. An unbelieving friend, who are you, you are here today and, and maybe you do not trust Christ, you're not walking with Christ. Understand this, that if you are not in Christ, trusting fully in him, you stand in the place of God's righteous judgment against you. But he's made a way for you to be free from that. He's, he's judged his son in your place. He's poured out his wrath on Jesus for your sin that you might, through trusting Jesus, escape that. So don't leave here today not trusting Jesus. Don't leave here today under God's wrath and judgment. Leave here today trusting Jesus, being adopted into God's family, being a child of the king. And so as the king who calls us to pray is the one who who calls us to go, commands us to go, we then as the church need to be prepared to be the one who God uses to answer our own prayers for more workers in the global harvest. Two weeks ago, at the close of the service, we all, several of us stood as, as we recognized the lost people that are in our lives. And we spent time at the end of that service praying for those lost people, for those people that do not know Jesus. Now understand, church, that by your genuine praying for workers to go into the harvest of people that you know that are lost, you are asking God to send you. Okay? Embrace that. Embrace that. Let God fill you with the Holy Spirit that you might go with confidence and boldness into the harvest to proclaim that the King has come, that there's a way of salvation, and that the day of salvation can be today for anyone who believes. You who pray, be ready to go and know that God will use you to answer your own prayer for more workers into the harvest. The King who commands us to pray is the King who commands us to go. Secondly, The command to go, the command that Jesus gives to his disciples is a command to go into danger. A command to go into danger, not away from, into. 
Verses 16 through 25, Jesus says this, Behold, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be, uh, will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus commands his disciples to go into danger, and he gives them some specific instruction about how they are to go even into danger. First, we go, they go foolishly. Foolishly. The command to go with the gospel is an inherently, in the eyes of the world, foolish idea. Jesus himself says he is sending us as sheep among wolves. A smart sheep, church, if ever there was such a thing, does not go out among wolves. Because a smart sheep knows what wolves do to sheep. But here Jesus is saying precisely where and how he is sending us. Like sheep. Among wolves, he's sending us with a commission to be, as we said several weeks ago when we were looking at the first part of Matthew chapter 8, to be irrationally generous with the gospel. A sheep among wolves is being irrationally generous with his life. So we're to go foolishly like sheep among wolves to people who will despise and reject us because of the gospel. And we're to go because Christ is sending us to do it. Secondly, as we go, even foolishly, we practice absolute integrity. We practice absolute integrity. Jesus says we are to be irrationally generous in this way. And as we do so, we are to, to do it with wisdom and shrewdness like a serpent. And this is not a, a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Just the serpent as a, as a part of creation. They're crafty. They're sneaky. They're, I don't know. You who like snakes, you know a lot of things about them. Right? We are to be like serpents. Right? We are to be watchful. We're to be timely. We're to be thoughtful, we're to be precise and strategic with the gospel on mission. We're supposed to be wise and shrewd as we go. But at the same time, we're to do so with total innocence like that of a dove. We do no harm. We do not manipulate. We do not seek our own profit as we go into the harvest. We proclaim the full truth of the gospel without hiding any aspect of it, without distorting any aspect of it. And we give no reason for anyone to doubt that we are genuine believers. Right? We're to be wise, strategic, thoughtful in where we go and how we go and how we get there and what we say when we do. But at the same time, we're to be completely innocent as doves, hiding nothing, manipulating no one, doing nothing for our own selfish gain, but doing all that, that God might be glorified and Christ might be magnified among people who need to hear the gospel. We're to practice on mission absolute integrity. But third, we go expecting hardship and harm. We go expecting hardship and harm. Why? Because Jesus promises it here in these passages, in these verses. 
First, we expect hardship and harm from the world. Jesus promises his disciples that their own people, the Jews, will have them charged in their own courts and in their synagogues. They'll drag them before the Sanhedrin and and have them flogged in synagogues, beaten in synagogues for the message of the kingdom that they proclaim. And after that, they'll be turned over to Gentile rulers for even more of the same. Does this not sound exactly like what we see the night of Jesus' arrest and the next day? Arrested by the uh, Jewish rulers in the middle of the night, taken before the Sanhedrin, beaten, flogged, sent to Pilate, Gentile ruler, governor, who would eventually hand him over to death. Jesus is instructing his disciples, preparing them for the fact that they must be ready to expect hardship and harm even from their own people. But maybe even more personally, we're to expect hardship and harm from our own families, Jesus says. Even worse than being persecuted by the world, the disciples are to expect that even their own families will turn on them for following Jesus. Right? Father and mother, sister and brother will have their own family members handed over to be killed because they bear the name of Jesus. This is to say that in a sinful world, there is virtually no safe place for the gospel. Hear me? If family members will turn against family members for the sake of Christ, there is no safe place for the gospel or kingdom living. The gospel cuts, church. It divides. It sets apart those who trust the king from those who despise the king. That's what it does by its very nature. And if the gospel is not cutting anywhere in your life, it may quite possibly be that you are not trusting the true gospel. We go expecting hardship and harm. But on the, on the bright side, on the other side of that, we also go with promises from God. So we go expecting hardship and harm from the world, from our families, but we also go with promises that come from God. And so when it should happen that the disciples are turned over to the Gentiles and to the governors and kings, Jesus tells them not to be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't stress out. Don't freak out about what you're to say in your own defense. So that is, that is to say when, when the governmental authorities round us up and arrest us and put us on trial for our faith, as we're standing there for a judge and jury and executioner or whoever else, we're not supposed to worry or stress or fret over what we speak in our defense about the gospel. Why? Because he promises that what is necessary to say will be given to us by God at that moment. He says, because it is not you who speak, but the spirit of the father speaking through you. This is not to say that we're not to be prepared uh, for that day. This is not to say that we don't study and think and pray about what we would say. It's not to say that we don't always have a defense ready for the hope that is in us. But instead, that when our lives are on the line for the gospel in the name of Jesus, we who are faithfully trusting in Christ our King will be given what to say, the right thing to say at the right time in our defense and in defense of the gospel. A great illustration of this in Scripture, of this actually happening, is Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen in Acts chapter 6 is about to be stoned. He's about to be put to death for proclaiming Christ. And what are his final words? A masterful, masterful sermon uh, about the gospel, right? Going all the way back to creation and, and walking up to the, the point of Jesus. Stephen preaches the Old Testament to those, pointing them to Jesus, to those who are about to kill him with rocks. Look at Stephen and, and, and tell me that he's not full, filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking only what God had given him to say in the right moment and in the right way at that time. The promise is even on display in the New Testament. 
The disciples are also promised that they will be hated by all for Jesus' namesake, for his namesake. But that the one who endures persecution and even death for the name of Jesus at the end will be saved. Jesus is not guaranteeing or promising in, in this verse escape from persecution. He's not saying that you who endure will eventually be able to go free and you'll go, go, go back to your regular life and those sorts of things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying salvation for the true believer is promised on the other side of persecution and death. Specifically, death. Right? As we endure, as these disciples, all 12 of whom save Judas who kills himself, all 12 of them will be faithful to Christ even to the point of their own deaths. They will proclaim Jesus and him crucified until they are dead. As will hundreds of thousands of other Christians in the early centuries of the church. And even hundreds of thousands of other Christians around the world even today. The promise is not that we will be free from persecution in this life. The promise is that we will have eternal salvation, uh, 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 eternal life with God in the presence of God on the other side of persecution that leads to death for the one who endures. The one who does not endure is very likely one who is not fully trusting Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, as you go into the harvest and when you are persecuted, not if, but when you are persecuted, the one who endures faithfully in my name to the end will be saved. The promise is here of the Holy Spirit to give us the words to say, the promise of salvation, even through death, are enough then, church, to keep us on mission until Christ returns. Those promises are enough to keep us on mission steadfastly until Jesus comes again. Look at verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, there are all sorts of things we could, all sorts of questions we could ask about this verse. And what is it that Jesus means? Um, There are three uh, uh, main opinions uh, regarding this text. Is Jesus talking about end times kind of stuff? Is he talking about the Son of Man, Jesus coming back a second time, uh, right, to to, uh, gather the church for judgment and saying that the the disciples will will all still be alive at that time? You know, so there are several different opinions on that. We don't have time to go in that today. Uh, we can talk about it afterward if you'd like to. But the point of what he's saying, I think, is this, regardless of the stance. The need for the gospel, the need for the heart, for people who are spiritually lost to know Christ is so great that there will not be a day in which there are those who do not need to hear the gospel before Jesus comes again. Jesus is saying, when you're persecuted, right, don't seek persecution, but when it comes, if you can, flee and go to the next town and share the gospel there. And when you're persecuted there, leave and go to the next town and share the gospel there. And when you're persecuted there, because you will, leave and, and go to the next town and share the gospel there. Because the need for the gospel will never end until I come again, Jesus says. To this day, there is need, great need for the gospel in the ends of the earth. And Christ has called and commissioned us to do it. So let us not stop, but let us tarry on, continue in the task of taking the gospel to the nations. So we go foolishly. We practice absolute integrity. We go expecting hardship and harm. We go with these promises from God that help us to endure to the end. All the while realizing that danger for the name of Christ, is absolutely normal. Danger for the name of Christ is absolutely normal. The disciple follows his teacher, Jesus says, so that he might be like his teacher. The servant 
works for his master with hopes of being a master, being a manager himself one day. Disciples and servants do what their teachers and masters do so that they too might one day be teachers and managers, that they too might be experts in their fields. That's why we go to college to learn from professors, that we might have the same kind of knowledge that they have. It's why we work hard in the industries and the jobs that we have very often so that we can have something for ourselves one day. The weak might also be able to be one that is managing others and that sort of thing. If Christ, then our King and Savior, would be arrested, would be unjustly tried and executed for what he proclaimed, what he preached, for the work that he did, if he was called Satan, if he was called Beelzebub for the work that he did in his ministry, how much more certainly then will we, servants of the king, be treated the same way by the world as well? In John chapter 15, Jesus, John, the apostle John records Jesus saying this, John fifteen eighteen: If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, Jesus says. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. Jesus promises that persecution will come, church. It will come. It is inevitable. We are not above our Savior that we would be able to uh, escape persecution in this life. We are not better than Jesus that we might not also do what he has commanded us to do as he set the example. We need to understand this today, church. And, and this has been even working in my own life. Following Jesus is not for the faint of heart. Following Jesus is not church, never will be, never ought to be convenient. Perhaps the greatest travesty perpetrated in the church today is this notion that God will never give you more than you can handle. A lie from the pit of hell. Does the persecution that Jesus is promising the disciples here, being handed over by their family members, tried unjustly, executed for their faith, does this look like the kind of stuff they can handle? Could first century churches, first century Christians handle being dipped alive in wax and set on fire to light the streets of Rome at night? Was that enough for them to handle? Was it enough for Chinese Christians to handle at the start of the communist revolution to be gathered up at night, beaten, imprisoned, never to see their families again? Is that enough for them to handle? Even Jesus, God in the flesh, fully human, fully God, had more than he could handle the night of his arrest and in his crucifixion. Did he not pray, Father, if possible, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass. But even so, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus didn't handle his circumstances. He died in the middle of them. When those who saw him on the cross said, if you really are the king of Jews, come down from that cross. Jesus could have. He chose also not to. Right? The liberties that we have to express our faith publicly, in the United States specifically, and to share the gospel freely here, are a global anomaly. We, in our religious freedom in this country, are the exception, not the rule. Our easy-going, unoppressed Christianity church is abnormal. It's odd. It's weird. It's strange in the global scene. 
It is a blessing of God to be sure, right? Let's not, I don't want to mince words there. It is a blessing of God to be able to worship freely the way that we do here without fear of, of governmental authorities barging in through the doors and taking us all off to prison this morning, right? It is a blessing to be able to worship the way that we do. But it is not, and we should not consider it to be normal, nor should we take it ever for granted. Normal, normal for the believer is having to flee from town to town because the persecution never stops for those who openly and unapologetically follow Christ and proclaim him crucified. Our freedoms in this country over the last 250 years, blessed as they are, have not only dulled us to the saving power of the gospel, but they've also blinded us to the urgency of the need of the gospel in our neighborhoods and the rest of the world. It's so stinking easy to be a Christian in the United States that it means relatively nothing to the millions who call themselves Christians in this country. It is so easy. It costs you nothing to be a Christian in this nation. And we take it for granted. I take it for granted. There are people lost and dying and going to hell today and we won't say boo about it because it's easy to be a Christian. When persecution comes in the early church, in the early centuries, and, and even throughout the history of the church, the church scatters, right? One has said that it's, it is like when, when the communist revolution came in, in, uh, in China and shut down the church, that it was like the emperor, or the, the, the dictator at the time, stomped on a sheet of glass when he shut down the church in China. And what happens when you stomp on a sheet of glass? scatters, it shatters, splinters, goes in all directions. So when the church is persecuted, it scatters and it takes the gospel with it. But where oppression and persecution are absent, when we're not being stepped on like a plate of glass, we turn into these armchair theologians arguing with one another about the merits of two deplorable political candidates rather than proclaiming the name of the only king who can truly change hearts and lives. Amen? It is so stinking easy for us to be Christians that we idolize the things that are not the king and we worship the king, the things that we are not promised by God. Religious liberty is a blessing, but church, we have oftentimes and in many ways made it an idol. We worship at the altar of religious liberty and in so doing, we forsake the king who purchased our souls. When social pressures are absent, when we're not oppressed for our faith, we cease to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. Instead, we grow spiritually fat and lazy. I said it. In the contentment and ease of the trappings of our Western civilization and our religious liberties. Church, if we lose our religious liberties in the United States of America... We enter into the joy of the millions of Christians who have never had religious liberty in communist China. We enter into the joy of the millions of Christians who have never enjoyed religious liberty in India and in sub-Saharan Africa. If we lose our religious liberties, then for the sake of Christ, we become normal again. The, The world should see us as weird. We should be strange. The world should turn their head and look at us funny for our faith in Christ. That's what Jesus promised. Why should we ever expect anything different? And that's why this is a hard text, church, because we don't want to be different. We want to be liked. 
We want to have an easy life. We enjoy our 55-inch flat-screen TVs and our three-bedroom, two, three, three-bedroom, two-bathroom houses with you know, gas-log fireplaces. We like those things. We like not having to flee from city to city because we're being persecuted for our faith. But Jesus never promised that we would live at 7463 Snowy Eager for the rest of our lives, being completely content and happy there. That's where I live, by the way. Right? He promised we would have to run. But church, we don't fear even when that day comes. We don't fear that day. When religious persecution takes hold in the United States, and Lord willing, it probably will, we don't fear it. We're not scared. We're not anxious. We don't worry. Why? Because God has already promised what he would do for us on that day. And God has already promised what he would do for those of us who endure even through death for the name of Christ. Verses 24 and 25 of of this passage promise us that true followers of Jesus will always be weird in the eyes of the world. And if Christianity ceases to be weird, if it ceases to be strange, if in the eyes of non-believers it's no longer an oddity, then it's clear that we are no longer following the true Christ. And my fear, church, is that in 2016 in the United States of America, there are millions of churches, millions of Christians that are deluded into thinking they're following the true Christ and they're worshiping religious liberty and forsaking the king who has purchased their souls. That's not an easy word for me to say, okay? But it's what God's word says. And so on the day of persecution, where will you be and how will you stand? What position will you take before those who are judging you for your faith in Christ? Will you hold fast to the Savior until the end through persecution and through death? Or will you forsake the name of Christ for the creature comforts of Western civilization? As we look at this text today, church, we have to see that when, not if, when persecution finds us, we must remember That it is normal. It's normal. We should expect it. And that God has promised eternal life to each one who endures. So then, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do now that we have religious liberty, we have religious freedom? What do we do? Well, we certainly don't rest on our laurels and take it for granted. Instead, we leverage, we use the religious freedoms that we have in this nation for the sake of the gospel in this nation. If there is no threat of of governmental persecution for your faith and mine today, what is stopping us from shouting from the rooftops the name of Jesus and the way to be saved? Lots of things seem to stop us, but let's just be real. What's stopping us? Nothing. Nothing. You go out on a street corner in the middle of communist China, you start proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. Before you know it, you don't exist anymore. You're You're just not around. They disappear you. But not here. Not here. You get some people, they might shout some obscenities at you. They might insult you. They might throw things at you. Right? But even that, even that is weak sauce in the global sense of persecution. We can take that. We can handle that. Christ has handled, has taken, endured far worse. And we, for his sake, must be prepared to endure even the same. So then, church, let us be, even as we said before, so with the religious liberties that we have, so irrationally generous with the gospel, like sheep among wolves, practicing absolute integrity for the name of Jesus and the glory of God while we have those freedoms. And then when we're gone, when those freedoms disappear, do it even more. Do it even more. 
We might, there may come a day where we have to meet in small closets with a, with a single light bulb hanging over our heads, singing songs of worship and praise quietly in a whisper so that we won't be rounded up and rested and executed. And in that day, praise God. Even in that day, a mighty fortress is our God. Church, in just a moment, Danny and the praise team are going to come back up. They're going to lead us in a song that we've sung hundreds of times probably in our lives. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And very often, we have sung this song as a song of response. Like, oh, I'm going to follow Jesus for the first time. And for you, believer or non-believer, you who are not trusting in Jesus today, that's an appropriate response to, to, this, to this text and, and even in this time of singing, that you give your life for the first time to Jesus. But church, for us who have been saved for many years, maybe six years, maybe six months, maybe 60 years, when we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, it's, it's more than just a song of commitment to follow Jesus for the first time, to give your life to him for to, trusting in him for salvation. It's also saying, I have decided to follow Jesus through persecution and even unto death, no turning back, no turning back. Church, is that the state of our heart today? Are our minds already in that mode that we know what we will and what we will not say on the day that we are persecuted? Let us make this time of response one that solidifies, that concretizes what we will do on that day before those who are judging us for our faith and what we will do today in leveraging our religious liberties and our freedoms to worship Christ the way that we can for the sake of the harvest that is on our doorstep, literally. Let's pray.